1: Welcome to this uh, 37th talk on the Book of Revelation. What I want to do tonight is effectively cover all of Chapter 17. We're going to cover some of the things that we've seen last time and move through. I'm going to read again the chapter one more time so that we can uh, get back into it. I know that the fires and and the different disruptions that we've had these past weeks have um, uh, sort of uh, may have uh, uh, taken the. The book of uh, Revelation out of our immediate context, so it's important for us to uh, to refresh our memory with what is it that we're studying tonight. So, if you have your your Bibles with you, uh, do please read with me or follow with me chapter 17 in the book of Revelation. And uh, I do use the uh, uh, Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition of Scripture, uh, which you uh, can find with um, you know with Ignatius or uh, Scepter now published it as well. So if you see variations on the text of your scripture with the one I'm reading, uh, just note that this is a more literal translation. It's closer to the original meaning, but it's drier. It doesn't have, uh, it's not as, um, it doesn't flow as nicely as some of the other translations, which uh, try to put the text more in context, but it's better for uh, scriptural studies. Uh, No, I did part of 17. Yes, uh, I did not cover all of 17, but I intend to recover the whole thing this time in in one shot. Uh, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornications. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And the dwellers on earth whose names not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes he must rule a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to perdition. And the ten horns that she saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." These are of one mind and give over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters that you saw where the harlot is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the harlot. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh. And burn her, with, burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry his purpose by being of one mind and giving over the royal power to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman that you saw in, the, in a great city, and the woman that you saw in the, is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Uh, it sounds like a fairly confusing text, lots of images. Lots of uh, you know discussions over kings and horns. And, and one more time, we have to remember the principle of interpretation we've been following all along. We don't stick to a literal interpretation. As in, when he says 10, he means 10. When he says 7, he means exactly 7. When he speaks of a horn, he really talks about a horn. These are metaphors and images used to denote a reality that is complex that has a historical presence at a time when the text was written that meant something back then that means something today, that will mean something across all ages until the consummation of time. It is this this, uh, principle of interpretation we've been following all along with the additional principle that every time we encounter an image or a word that seems charged with meaning, we need to look into Scripture to help us understand the meaning. Because Scripture... Needs to be interpreted in light of Scripture, which is what the Catholic uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches us. So here we have effectively two, um, three, three parts in this text. First, from verse one through verse seven, we're talking about a great harlot. From eight through fifteen, we're talking about the beast, and then sixteen and seventeen really talk about the people and kings. So three types. Three groups of protagonists: the great harlot, the beast, peoples, people, and kings. Um, we're going to look at each one of them in turn and try to understand what Saint John is referring to. I will tell you right away, as I said last time, that uh, particularly verse eighteen. And the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Particularly this verse has led many interpreters to see in the great city, therefore in the harlot, Rome, the city of Rome. And I will argue tonight that there is, that this interpretation does not hold ground when we examine the text in light of Scripture. And I will show you why as we proceed through. Uh, Some of you may be wondering, why am I highlighting this point? Because you will see this interpretation over and over again. Perhaps even in your own Bibles right now, if you look down in the footnotes, you may see that the indication is leading to or pointing to Rome. This is very prevalent, but if I follow these uh, principles of interpretation, I can't be driven to conclude that it is Rome. It's a different city, and we we shall see why. In context, recall that prior to this, we've seen the dragon who was thrown from heaven, fell on earth, and way back in the trumpets, right, he fell, and he called the beast from the sea, which is Rome, and then he brought up the beast from the earth, which is this fake or false lamb, a a creature or a beast that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. And we've indicated that this was truly the prophetic or the, the, um, the priestly power, prophetic power that is being indicated here. And, um, and uh, we, we, uh, w- uh, we notice now that the beast from the sea is still there, but suddenly this beast from the land seems to have disappeared. It's as if it's not there anymore. And I will argue that the beast from the land and the great harlot are one and the same. They're one and the same. They're different images indicating or pointing towards the same reality. So effectively, the power of the dragon, Satan, continues throughout the ages where he combines political might with religious authority to make war against the land. It hasn't changed. It will never change until the consummation of time. Uh, Satan has lost his primary power, which is his power to deceive people worldwide. It used to be that Satan was able to deceive people worldwide. And how do we know that? Because prior to Christ, the truth was restricted only among, primarily I would say, not only, but primarily among the chosen people. Who were guided by the spirit of God, but outside of that, what reigned was paganism. What reigned was uh, superstition. What reigned was a a an occult view of nature. And it is only through the Judeo-Christian civilization that you see primarily the creation or the inception of science. Science as modes, as a means to the truth in all its ways. All the progress that were made throughout the history of uh, civilization in science are primarily made through the Judeo-Christian civilization. Why? Because it brought truth. Likewise, the establishment of the Catholic Church preserves the truth. And hence, the teachings of the Church are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. There has never been, in in the history of the Church, a situation where the church will teach one thing one day and then changes her mind later. The church never errs in matters of moral and theology. And it is this preservation of the truth that uh, profoundly marks the, uh, the breakdown of the satanic power. But at the same time, Satan still has the power to deceive, but he has to do, to do it through more devious means. And he, he, he hence uses politics and religion whenever he can to persecute Christianity. So now, beginning with verse 1, um, we... Well, actually, before I do that, I would like to remind you of my working hypothesis one more time, that the woman, the false prophet that we've seen, the Babylon the Great, and the beast from the land are all images. They're all the images depicting one and only reality at the time of St. John, which was Jerusalem. Right? Back then, it depicted Jerusalem. Today, it may depict a different city or a different civilization or a different political power or entity. The woman depicts Jerusalem under the guise of harlotry, which is an accusation that we see has been levied against Jerusalem consistently. The false prophet... Is one that depicts Jerusalem under the guise of idolatry, which is again something that Israel, that the prophets have accused Jerusalem of doing. Babylon the Great represents the obstacle to the covenant, because this is what Babylon was. It it was an obstacle. It was an enemy to the uh, uh, the people of the covenant. And finally, a beast that looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon represents corrupt priesthood, the priest who's supposed to speak like a lamb but actually speak like a dragon. So it's the four facets under which p- the people of God, or the people that ought to be of God, do betray Jesus. And uh, the, it, is, it is very interesting, if you do a little study of Judas, you see that through Scripture, um, uh, Judas, in essence, fills the, three, the last three obstacles I told you about. Uh, that of idolatry, obstacle to the covenant, and a corrupt priesthood, right? So, and and because John said that he was he used to steal from the money of the poor, um, one does wonder about harlotry. Although it, there's nothing stated, uh, you know, that, that points uh, Judas in in this, in this direction. But he, uh, in his person, fits these three positions. And uh, there is another really interesting uh, twist. Very interesting. Jesus called Peter Satan, right? And he called Judas his friend. Something to reflect on. Something to reflect on. I'll leave you to think about that. All right. So in the the preceding chapter, we saw the seven bowls poured out on the world economy, leading to preparation of the war. In this chapter, we see the next logical step, the destruction of the center of opposition. right. Which is the, the center where the opposition against the covenant, the new covenant, is emanating from. It's coming through, which, is, um, which was back then Jerusalem. The judgment on the woman who is later associated with Babylon the Great is taken from Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 13. Verse 1 this woman, we hear, of verse 1 come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters. The reference to this is in Jeremiah, chapter 51, verse 13. 51, verse 13, where the prophet predicts the absolute judgment on historical Babylon. On historical Babylon. Um, The woman sitting on the beast indicates power, control, sovereignty. Essentially, there is, it's essentially the writer on the beast. Right? So there is definite power and authority um, uh, being represented here. Now, Harlotry. Who was called a harlot in Scripture and why? Mainly, there were actually three cities that were accused of harlotry. And those were Tyre, Nineveh, and Jerusalem. In Scripture, um, you find... That Tyre has been called uh, a harlot once in Isaiah chapter twenty-three, verse fifteen through eighteen. Uh, Isaiah twenty-three, fifteen through eighteen, and um, Nineveh has been called a harlot once in the book of Nahum, chapter three, verse four. The, the prophet Nahum, chapter three, verse four. Whereas Israel has been called a harlot sixty-two times. six times in Jeremiah, 33 times in Ezekiel, mainly in chapter 16, 23, and 43, 20 times in Hosea, once in Joel, chapter 4, verse 3, once in Amos, chapter 7, verse 17, and once in Micah, chapter 1, verse 7. Only Nineveh, Tyre, and Jerusalem. Not Sodom. Not Gomorrah. Not Egypt. Not Jericho. Not Babylon. Only these three. Why, why only these three cities? Why single out these three cities among all the cities that had opposed the kingdom of God? Why? Because these are three cities that had entered into a covenantal relation with God. That is why. Harlotry as an accusation cannot be levied against a harlot. If a woman is a harlot by profession, why would you accuse her of harlotry? Harlotry here is a precisely a an accusation levied against a woman who's not supposed to be a harlot. She's supposed to be a faithful wife. Now, before I go deeper into this, I want to clarify one thing. This is not about patriarchal society who is looking in a um, negative way on women. It is not about. It is not trying to say that women are the problem and men are 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 virtuous. It has nothing to do with it. It simply has to do with the fact that God has always presented himself as being the Lord in a marital relationship with his people. So his people, Israel, has always assumed the position of the bridegroom. I mean the bride, I'm sorry. And the Lord has always assumed the position of the groom. And therefore, that's why the accusation comes about. Now, our souls are also supposed to be the bride of Jesus. And the consummate union between God and us, it is the union of the soul with her beloved. Now, don't carry over any sexual connotation into this. Marital relationship is a lower union of love that points to, that is a symbol of, a representation of, a sacrament of, the union of of love between the soul and her Lord. Okay. So th- this is why these three cities have been called harlots. I'll I'll give you a couple of references uh, quickly here. Um, I think I have it on this page here. So, uh, for instance, in Isaiah chapter twenty-three, verse seventeen. Uh, Tyre is, is uh, played the harlot with the kingdoms with all the kingdoms of the earth. Meaning what? Meaning that Tyre preferred preferred economic growth, econo- economic wealth, over her faithfulness to the covenant that King Hiram had entered into when he talked to King Solomon and helped him build the temple of Jerusalem. Okay? Likewise, Nineveh. When the king fasted and asked God to forgive their sins, he had effectively entered into a covenant with God. Understand that any time one of us says something to the Lord like, uh, Lord, if you do this, I will do that, we are entering into a covenant. It's not a contract. You can't just break it after. The Lord does His part and you say, Oh, Thanks, Lord, I changed my mind. You're breaking the covenant. And the covenantal curses will ensue. Okay? So only in those conditions may one speak of harlotry. So now I ask you this question. When did Rome enter into a covenant with God? Only when the See of Peter was established. Only when Italy was consecrated that the covenant between the nation and God was established not before at the time of the writings of St John Rome had not entered in any covenant whatsoever with the Lord therefore why would we think that Rome is being accused of harlotry when neither Babylon nor Jericho nor Egypt nor Sodom nor Gomorrah were ever accused of harlotry do you understand why it makes it very difficult when you look at the text and in its, in its biblical context to get the harlot pointing to Rome. And it, we, we can only see Jerusalem who is mentioned 61 times as being the harlot. Now there are other, um, there are other factors that weigh into this decision which I'm going to be- get to as we go through the text. Um, The heartless resemblance of the original Babylon is underscored by the information that sits on many waters. The fact that she sits on many waters is taken from Jeremiah's description of Babylon in his famous oracle of judgment against her. And you find that in in, uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51, in which he speaks of the city sitting on many waters. And the expression, many waters... Of Jeremiah refers both to the Euphrates, which ran through the middle of the city and to the canals, to the canals or the channels surrounding it. Ultimately, it refers to the blessings which God had bestowed on Babylon and which she prostituted for her own glory. So God bestowed blessings on Babylon, and the symbol of it is water, but Babylon decided to use it for its own self-glorification instead of giving glory to God. Right? And therefore that's why it was effectively. She was effectively called a harlot. Right? All right. And I pointed out to you about Nineveh and and Tyre and why they were effectively uh, called harlots. Uh, So when King Hiram uh, entered into a covenant with Solomon, as indicated in the book of Kings, the first book of Kings, chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, and chapter 9, verse 13, as well as Amos, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, and, and then Nineveh was converted under the ministry of Jonah in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. And the later apostasy of those two cities could rightly be considered three Now, let's look at the wilderness in, in verse 3. And he carried me away in his spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit- sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The, the, the expression, into the wilderness in the spirit, right? he carried me into the wilderness in the spirit, is a formula of a prophetic commission. It's a formula of prophetic commission based on similar formulas expressing Ezekiel's repeated prophetic authority to announce judgment to sinful Israel. So when you read the book of Ezekiel... And you see this expression occurring over and over again, preceding an oracle of judgment against who? Israel. Now, where is St. John being taken to? To the desert to see what? This woman who is seated on, a, uh, on this beast. The, there is here an interesting, um, an interesting contradiction between verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, you note that the angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters. In verse 3, the angel takes St. John in the spirit into the wilderness. Many waters and wilderness simply don't go together. You don't have many waters in the wilderness. The wilderness, by definition, is, 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 is arid. It's a semi-desertic area. It isn't an area of many waters. So, we have to keep in mind that this is symbolic geography, right? This is not literal geography. Because otherwise, uh, you would be really hard-pressed to find... It's an oxymoron to speak of a wilderness where you have many waters. It just doesn't make sense, right? So, it is symbolic geography. And... um, uh, the reason is that he's trying to portray two things. Here is this woman who, is, who has received the blessings of God, but yet she's in the wilderness. Right? There is a contrast here between this woman who has received the blessings of God, many waters, yet is in the wilderness, with this other woman, the woman closed with the sun, who is persecuted. And had to go and hide in the wilderness when you look at the concrete situation of these two women, you'd think that this this one, the harlot sitting on the beast on many waters, is the one blessed by God because she has economic power and and let's clarify this image a little bit. This is not a monster, right If you were to look at the harlot seated on the beast. You don't see a monster. Do you understand that? You don't see something that would be repugnant. You won't see something that you would want to run away from. To the contrary, it is very attractive. Right? This woman is hip. She's cool. She's got the greatest looks. You'd want to imitate her. You'd be attracted to her. She offers you everything you want. She's holding a cup. There is merriment. There are parties. There is happiness. This beast she's sitting under would not look like a beast. She w- it would look like a center of power, a center of economic growth, a center of wealth, a center of well-being, a center of a place where you really want to belong. Do you understand? Don't confuse the spiritual eye with the physical one. How do we know that? We know that because in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. St. John, the beloved of the Lord, marveled. He didn't say, I was disgusted thoroughly. I was so offended He marveled. And I'll get to that in a minute. I just want you to understand, to correct the image in your mind. Don't think that it's just some, you know, ugly old hag that he went to see in a desert. No. Lots of lights, lots of merriment, lots of fun. Open 24 hours. That's what he went to see. Hmm, I wonder what this makes me think of. So, the, try to formulate the appropriate the appropriate image in your mind to understand the text. Just don't think this is, you know, a, a monster, at least in a physical appearance. But Saint John is indicating to us the spiritual reality that the people of faith will be able to perceive through the eyes of faith. But people who have no faith are blind to this reality. Are blinded to the truth. So think of the contrast between this one, this woman, scarlet woman, who looks really pretty, sitting on this very powerful, very attractive, very interesting, very fascinating beast, and this other woman who had to run away in the desert and hide. And you would see that across the ages, this has not changed. This has been constantly the reality of the church and of the world. Um, It is also interesting that the wilderness is a sign of detachment. You detach yourself. St. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. And what is being indicated to us here on a moral reading is that we need to be detached so that we can perceive things truly as they are detachment from the things of the world is a precondition for us to perceive reality perceive reality and so i again i again stress this point that i made many many times if you, you need to you need to think of yourself as warriors you are spiritual warriors and your battle is not fought with weapons. It is fought with the Spirit. But you have to be detached from the world to fight this battle and win it. If you're attached to the world, you cannot win this battle. And you need to ask yourself these questions, especially the young. I really, in a sense, I'm truly sorry for what our generation gave you. We we're giving you a poison pill because we didn't want to own up to our responsibilities, we're giving you a poison pill. It's harder for you to be detached from the things of the world than it was for us. That's a fact. Maybe you wonder, what is he talking about? Let me throw at you certain things. You really want to be detached? You really want to win this battle? Realistically? Realistically. Realistically. There are certain things you are going to have to do. Girls, you're going to have to stop following the fashion. You're going to have to think really hard about how you can be dressed appropriately, elegantly, but modestly. And don't count on your own sense of modesty because I will tell you right now, if, you've been, if, you've grew, if you grew up in this culture, and your father wasn't after you to tell you what is modest, you have none. You don't know what is modest. That's the truth. You need to help. the help of a friend, a male friend, someone you trust, maybe someone in your family, who can tell you if this is modest or not. Guys, give up gaming. I mean it. Give it up. You won't be able to cultivate an interior life, a life of prayer, until you give up gaming. The two go the two oppose each other. There's no way. Not gonna happen. Realistically. It'd be like somebody saying, I want to be sober, but I'll get drunk once in a while. Can't do it. Not gonna work. Give up TV. What do you mean give up TV? It's my... I can't live without TV. Oh, and you're detached from the things of... Of course I am. I'm just watching a little bit of TV. What's wrong with that? Are you detached? Yeah, I am. Give it up. I can't. Doesn't mean you have to give up TV forever. Doesn't mean you have to give up gaming forever. Doesn't mean you have to... Well, for some of you, yeah. Some of you are TV-holic. You're addicted. Some of you are game-holic. You're addicted. And you girls, some of you are so addicted to your look that you just can't live without it. What do you think this is going to lead you? You think it's free? Think again. Again, I'm really sorry because these things should have been taught to all of you when you were little, when you were 9-year-old, 10-year-old. You hear it from me right now, it's like a cold shower. It's hard, I know. But I would be remiss in not telling you the truth. I'd be remiss in pretending that you have a chance of winning this war and behaving like the next Joe. Why next Joe? The next guy over who doesn't believe. No way. Your faith has got to show. And it shows in your behavior, in the way you live, in the way you really gain control over your senses. Without it, <coughs> battle is really rough. Think about that. Pray about it. So, the wilderness is where one meets, meets God. It's when we detach ourselves. When we say to the Lord, you are the most important thing for me. I wish I was with you alone somewhere. I don't need to be anywhere else. You want to get to that level. You want to get there. If you don't have that desire, ask the Lord to give it to you. Because that's the foundation of your love for God. And that's that goes for all of us, without exception. It's this love of solitude that you have to foster in your heart. And you can't foster this love of solitude if you are so attached to these other things that pull you into the crowd, that pull you into the noise, that pull you into yourself... And makes you more and more aware of who you are and who others are. Instead of forgetting all of this and focusing on God. Alright. So, the loving detachment of God is the foundation of our free will. For God loves us with detachment. He loves us with detachment to attach us to himself. God loves us with detachment. He's not going to force you into heaven. He's not going going to force you or me into heaven. That's that's the only proper way to love, with detachment. Parents, that means you love your kids with detachment. God wants to take them early, He takes them early. Husbands and wives, you love each other with detachment. It's this holy detachment where everything and everyone on our way is there as a gift from God to us. But at the end of the day, all of that is going to be taken away from us. All of it. So that we can be face-to-face with the Beloved. Now, verse 3, like the sea beast, this beast here, so verse 3, And he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Like the sea beast, it is full of blasphemous names. And like the dragon, it has seven heads and ten horns. Right? It's a parody of the throne of God. If you think about this harlot seated on this beast with the blas- blasphemous names, think of Christ seated on his throne in heaven, surrounded by the four creatures. Okay? So. In heaven, the throne of God is supported by the living creatures who are are full of eyes and who are day and night engaged in God's praise. The harlot queen is seated on this beast who is full of blasphemous names. The devil always tries to parody, to create a parody of heaven in everything he does. In verse 4, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 13, Thirty, we read, and you, O Israel, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you deck yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself, your lovers despise you, they seek your life. That's Jeremiah chapter four, verse thirty. And here in verse four, the woman was arrayed in purple and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her fornication. Right? So this woman is Israel. And we need to understand it in its proper context. It is She's clothed in purple and scarlet, which are garments of splendor on royalty. Uh, scarlet or purple was the color of royalty in Israel. So the, the, the house of David wore purple during Passover, the celebration of the Passover. Every firstborn of the house of David would wear purple. That is why our bishops today wear purple, because Christ wore purple purple he was of the house of David that is why bishops wear that color it is not something we've invented in the middle ages it is it comes to us through the tradition of um, of Israel so she's of the of, of she's a royalty she's a queen and she's gilded with gold and precious stones and pearls in keeping with biblical descriptions of the glorious city of God so the gold the pearls and the stones are not there to simply say she is rich She's got lots and lots of money. Or she's interested in um, showing off. It has nothing to do with that. Don't fall for the political slash social interpretation. It'll lead you astray. Think always in terms of the liturgy. In terms of the liturgy. The high priest wore on his breast, breastplate, with what? Twelve precious stones. Representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Gold is used everywhere in the Holy of Holies. It is used on the Ark. Why? It indicates purity. It indicates glory, the glory of God. So what you have here is a woman who is exteriorly decked with the glory of God, indicating the beauty of heaven, and yet interiorly is um, decaying. That's the reality of the image. this is how to view it um, in in, in, its, in its biblical context. So uh, for instance, uh, um, these these clothes of this woman are the clothes of the righteous woman, the bride who is supposed to be arrayed in a glorious dress. Exodus chapter three verse 22, Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 11 through 14. The book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 21 through 22. Effectively, think of her as the bride. She would be dressed as a bride. And she's a harlot. What is being seen here is the, the decay, the decadence, of, of the one who was supposed to be the bride, and who has disowned or has run away from her, her, uh, her husband, her Lord, which has been constantly the history of Israel, which has been in many ways constantly the history of Catholics. Right? That's what we're talking about here. The, she's holding in her hand a, a golden cup full of what? Abominations and impurities of her fornications. It isn't the cup of blessing. It is the cup of abomination. Think of it in its liturgical context. It's almost a black mass. It's almost a black mass. It's the anti-liturgy. What you see here is not simply a party. Or let me put it to you differently. parties, Immoral parties are effectively anti-liturgies. Immoral parties are the first step to black mass. The ultimate immoral party is a black mass. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? There is no such thing as a party without a religious context. We may think this way because we're naive, but there isn't. Every gathering is either praising God or defaming His name. Those are the two choices we have. There's no neutral ground. We're either blessing God or we're cursing Him. Because we are people of the covenant, whether we like it or not. These are two choices. And so, immoral parties, parties where people get drunk. So, to Catholics, I would like to remind you, especially the youth, you may not know that, getting drunk is a mortal sin. Translation You're a Catholic, you know that getting drunk is a mortal sin. You go ahead and you get drunk, and God forbid you die. It's one way ticket to hell. It's not complicated. Do you understand that? You have a moral responsibility to uphold the law of God. We all do. So, getting drunk is not something to be proud of. It's not something to speak about or to encourage. You encourage someone to get drunk, you've committed a mortal sin. You've led someone into sin. You're as guilty. You speak proudly about a party where you went and people are getting drunk. You've committed a sin. A, it could be mortal. Do you understand that? Those are important elements of your spiritual life that you cannot neglect for vain glory. Because it will surely lead you astray. Don't do that. It's not worth it. Those of you who love rock and roll and go to concerts, be very careful about those concerts, what happens there. And if these concerts are being immoral, you should not be there, period. It's not a place for you. So effectively, the false bride is celebrating a communion of sorts. She holds in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her fornication combining the images of unclean food, as found in Leviticus chapter 11, and unclean marriage in Leviticus chapter 20. Okay? So, we basically have an unclean ceremony from beginning to end, meaning a ceremony that is not glorifying God, but rather glorifying a creature. And if you recall from the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, he, and multiple times he told them that. right? You are like whitewashed tombs, all beautiful from the outside, yet full of decays and unclean things from the inside. Many times Jesus spoke about Jerusalem, about the Pharisees, about the temple, in these terms. So this accords with what Jesus said about the city of Jerusalem, but it isn't just about Jerusalem in the past. It's about every parish today. The parish where 80% of the Catholics are, are contracepting would fit This parish would be called a harlot, because that's what they are about. They're not upholding the truth of God. They're not living according to the faith. They are being unfaithful as a parish. The same treatment would apply. God loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay the way we are. That's the difference between God and our supposed friends who would just accept us the way we are because they want to be accepted the way they are. right? Mediocrity guiding mediocrity. Where do you think this is going to lead? Verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harless, and on earth's abominations. Recall from the dress code of the high priest, he had on his forehead, what? Holy to the Lord. That's what the high priest would have on his forehead. On her forehead... She has words of abomination. You see the parallelism, the continuous parallelism from a religious standpoint between the way she's dressed, the way a bride would be dressed, the way the high priest would be dressed, and everything points in one direction, and really one direction only, which is Jerusalem, when you look at the meaning of those of those texts. So, it is the name of the word mystery. And, uh, you know, Corsini, a Catholic um, a Catholic. Um, Uh, exegete and theologian wrote, if the prostitute is called mystery, that means that she, even in the moment in which she is judged and condemned, still forms an an integral and important part in the divine plan of salvation. This cannot be the case for Rome or any other pagan city, but only for Jerusalem. Only she and no other city will be renewed and will descend from heaven upon Mount Zion to celebrate a marriage with the Lamb. Because in the days of the trumpet, called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God should be fulfilled. So, she still has the name of mystery written on her, but she's defiled. And therefore, it is the city of Jerusalem that has, back then, betrayed the Lord. Now, the word mystery, mysterion, appears 26 times in scriptures, six times in the Old Testament, and 20 times in the New. And the six uh, occurrences in the Old Testament are all in the book of Daniel, which effectively is speaking about the coming of the Son of Man. In Mark verse f- chapter 4, verse 11, we read, "...the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you, but to those outside everything comes in parables, so that they may look and see but not perceive, and hear and listen but not understand, in order that they may not be converted and be forgiven." So the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted unto you meaning that your eyes have been opened to perceive and understand the mystery but those who are outside only get parables that's why Jesus spoke in parables because he was hiding he was he was hiding the truth and we had a whole study done on Matthew. It starts in Matthew chapter 13, when the Pharisees accuses of him of being effectively the spirit of Beelzebul incarnate. That's the accusation they levy against him. And when they do that, he immediately switches over from speaking plainly into speaking in parables. So parables occur every time there is a corrupt priesthood. We've seen it also with Nathan. When he went to speak to David, he spoke to him in parable. Parables are used when you're dealing with corrupt authorities or corrupt people because you want to call the truth from them. That's what happens here. So, be it as it were, um, mystery is ind- indicative of the church. And we've seen that multiple times. I'll give you a couple of references. us to the Romans, chapter 11, verse 25, uh, is again another place where uh, St. Paul, actually let me read it to you because it's really worth it. Romans 11:25 I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers so that you will not be become wise in your own estimation a hardening has come upon Israel in part until the full numbers the full number of the gentiles comes in a hardening has come upon Israel in part until the full number of the gentiles come in and so that's, that's one reason why we believe that one of the signs indicating the end of the world is approaching is the full conversion of the Jews. Massive conversion of the Jews into the Catholic Church. Okay? Because of the words of St. Paul. Alright, so in verse 6 and 7, St. John is taken to the wilderness to see the woman who is drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. St. John marvels greatly. As I said earlier, this implies his view was not disgusting. And St. John needs the help of an angel to see things clearly. The angel has to help him. And that's why we need our guardian angels to help us go behind or beyond decoys. To help us avoid or escape the traps of the evil one. You absolutely need your guardian angel. You have to have a great devotion to your guardian angel. You have to accept to be led by him. He needs to lead you and guide you in everything because he is your protector begin today learn the prayer for your guardian angel angel of god my guardian dear to whom god's love and trust me here ever this day be at my side to light and guard to rule and guide to light and guard to rule and guide that's what you're telling this saint to do for you and if you start doing that you will see that your life will change. And as I've said many, many times, for those of you who do not have a devotion to your garden angel and who drive, as you're driving somewhere, ask your garden angel to find you a parking spot. And notice what happens. And I'm not saying that so you can have a utilitarian view of your garden angel. He's not a busboy. But it's a beginning of a, trust, uh, of a trustful relationship with your garden angel. And from then on, take it into everything. Help, let him help you with your exams, with your tests, with your work, with your contracts, with your projects, with everything. Really work, strive to have a great devotion to your guardian angel. It's worth it. All right. And if you're interested and you don't know much about angels, on corbono.com, Q-O-R-B-O-N-O, corbono.com, my website, you'll find a series called The Angels. It's a four-series talk that delve in depth into the world of the angels. It's worth listening to if you don't know much about the angels. Verse 8, the angel represents the beast as a parody of him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, this who, him who is and who was and who is to come, by now you should know that, is another way of saying the Lord, right? Yahweh, I am who I am. But we don't say it because in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mind, you don't say the name of the Lord. So he uses this hyperbola to speak of God. Who is, who was, who is to come. And here in verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit. Was, is not. Versus God, who is, who, who was, who is, and who is to come. Right? That's the first indication here. Do you, see, do you see the difference between the two. Now, historically, this verse the beast that you saw was and is not and is to ascend from the bottomless pit and go to perdition and the dwellers on earth whose name, whose names not been, have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to behold the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Historically, most likely, this reference is to Vespasian, Vespasian a Roman emperor who became Caesar after the chaos which followed upon the death of Nero. Um, the commentator Ford says the beast was Vespasian, and is not, he fell, f- so was, Vespasian was in favor with Nero, is not, Vespasian fell from favor, and will come from the abyss, he was restored with the help of the men of the pit, an epitaph for perverse men from, from Qumran, Vespasian stands parallel to he who is to come. So Nero, you need to realize that after the death of Nero, uh, the Roman Empire fell into chaos, and many feared its demise, its complete destruction. And it recovered suddenly when Vespasian came and established himself as the emperor. Vespasian was not of the line of Julius Caesar, the first emperor. It was a different line. Nero was the last of the line of Julius Caesar. So Vespasian was in favor favor with Nero, then he fell out of favor, and then he came back. So that's what historically this indicates. For our perspective, what this is indicating, when we abstract it away, is there is a period of chaos, of turbulence. We may think that certain powers are being defeated and they're gone and it may look like so, but they will recover or they might recover or they can recover and become stronger. All right? That calls for fortitude. Right? We're not looking here for a quick fix. We're looking for the ultimate victory of Jesus over the world. So in one sense, the empire passed through the same stages. It was from Caesar to Nero, was not in a critical year of the four emperors. So between Nero and Vespasian, there were four emperors that reigned successively for a very short period of time, and the emperor, empire was in great chaos. Right? And then Vespasian came and restored the empire. Uh, Suetonius, the uh, Roman historian, writes, The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors failed by the sword. Four were killed, one after the other. Um, There were civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. There was success in the east, misfortune in the west. Illyricum was disturbed, the Gallic provinces wavering. Britain subdued and immediately let go. The Sarmati and Suebi rose against us. The Dacians won fame by defeats, inflicted, and suffered. Even the Parthians were almost roused to arms through the trickery of a pretended Nero. Moreover, Italy was distressed by disasters unknown before or returning after the lapse of ages. Cities of the rich fertile shores of Campania were swallowed up or overwhelmed. Rome was devastated by conflagrations in which her most ancient shrines were consumed and the very capital fired by citizens' hands. Sacred rites were defiled. There were adulteries in high places. The sea was filled with exiles. Its cliffs made foul with the bodies of the dead. In Rome, there was more awful cruelty. Beside the manifold misfortunes that befell mankind, there were prodigies in the sky and on the earth, warnings given by thunderbolts and prophecies of the future, both joyful and gloomy, uncertain and clear. For never was it more fully proved by awful disasters of the Roman people or by indubitable signs that gods care not for our safety but for our punishments. We have It's very hard for us to imagine the state of chaos, the state of trouble that the empire was in during this period between Nero and Vespasian. Suetonius continues... So upon this confirmation of Vespasian's entire government, which was now settled, and upon the unexpected deliverance of the public affairs of the Romans from ruin, Vespasian turned his thoughts to what remained unsubdued in Judea. Thus, after a time of grievous civil wars, the empire was revived by the ascending of Vespasian to the purple. All right? So, effectively, the angel is speaking of this, he's prophesying what is going to happen to the Roman Empire right around that period. That's why, in many of the folks who study this, according to the biblical interpretation, it's really hard for us to think that this was written in 98 AD, after all of that has taken place. That's why we think, more likely, it's written around 60 AD, before the fall of Rome, and right around when Nero was still alive during his persecution, when the text was really penned by St. John. So verse 9 and 10, what I will say to you is that these seven heads and seven hills effectively are the city of Rome. Right? And the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. I mentioned that speaking of Vespasian. And uh, so that's all I'll say right now, that effectively the, bee- the, the women, Jerusalem, is seated upon the beast, Rome. And from Rome, the, Jerusalem is deriving uh, power and authority. Verses 11 and 13. In verses 11 and 13, we see that there are 10 horns, which refer to 10 kings. Now, it's, it's unclear whether the 10 here means specifically 10 or multitudes. Most likely, it means really a multitude of kings who are all associated with Rome. Right? Even though back then Rome had 10 provinces, Italy, Achaia, Syria, Egypt, Africa, Spain, Gaul, Britain, Germany, and some have read this as a reference to them. Maybe, maybe not, because not all of them were involved in the war against Jerusalem. Most likely, it really refers to all the different kings and all the parts of the empire who derive their power from the beast and give assent to Vespasian and give assent to the empire. Okay, that's, 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 you know, this is satisfactory. We do not have to really dig deeper uh, than that into this. So they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here, the indication is that these kings across the entire empire are going to persecute the church. And this persecution, we know, lasted for 300 years. Effectively, the church was underground everywhere across the empire for 300 years until the the, uh, rise to the power of uh, um, um, Constantine when things changed. So the church as a whole is called to persevere and endure, not because the king is delaying, but precisely because endurance and perseverance are the unmistakable signs of his presence. Let me repeat that to you. It's really important. The church as a whole, this applied back then and applies today, is called to persevere and endure, not because the king is delaying, we're not doing it because the king is delaying. He's not showed up yet. But precisely because endurance and perseverance are the unmistakable signs of his presence. And it is the, this Eucharistic presence which provides them with the sustenance they need to endure and persevere. Right? That's The, the endurance and perseverance of Christians, of Catholics across the world is the unmistakable sign of the kingship of Jesus Christ without it they could not endure they could not persevere in verse 15 the many waters are people's multitudes nations and tongues in acts verse 2 verse 5 in acts 2 verse 5 speaking about the day of pentecost we read that there were Jews staying in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven Okay? And there were also synagogues in all the empire and they were considered licit. So that what does that tell us? It tells us that throughout the empire there were synagogues which are considered licit. The Jewish religion was accepted in the Roman Empire. And that's what we speak of, of this connection, both economic and political, between the Temple of Jerusalem and the power of Rome. Right? Now in verse 16... And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the harlot, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So the 10 kings and the beast will hate the harlot. Now, hate the harlot, make her desolate. The same word is used in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Mark 13:14 and Luke 21:20, 20, when Jesus is speaking of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be desolate. Make her naked. One of the punishments for a convicted adulteress is, in the ancient world, was the public humiliation of being stripped naked. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter forty-seven, verse two and three, Jeremiah verse thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse twenty-six. You'll find in the lamentation, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Nahum. Eat her flesh. They're going to eat her flesh. Well, the nations eat the flesh of the harlot as the dogs. And if you recall. The dogs were another name used to talk about the Gentiles. Right? The dogs ate the flesh of who? Jezebel, the harlot queen. Okay. So they don't mean by that literally they're going to go and cannibalize. The reference is to this, what happened to Jezebel, the harlot queen. Burn her up with fire. To be burned with fire... We take that from Leviticus chapter 21, verse 9. Um, is effectively a way of cleansing. Offering up as a sacrifice. Right? As a sacrifice of reparation. Burning up with fire. And what happened to Jerusalem? Jerusalem was burnt up with fire. Completely. Uh, Russell observed that Tacitus speaks of the bitter animosity with which the Arab auxiliaries of Titus... So Titus was um, under Vespasian. He was his son, actually. And uh, he had his uh, army, an army of um, um, mercenaries. And uh, uh, Tacitus, who was a historian at the time, speaks of the bitter animosity with which the Arab auxiliaries of Titus were filled against the Jews. And we have a fearful proof of the intense hatred felt towards the Jews by the neighboring nations in the wholesale massacres of, of the Jews perpetrated in many great cities just before the outbreak of the war. The whole Jewish population of Caesarea, you remember Kaisera Philippi? Caesarea, was massacred in one day. In Syria, every city was divided into two camps, Jews and Syrians. In Scythopolis, upwards of 13,000 Jews were butchered. In Ascalon, Ptolemy, and Tyre... Similar atrocities took place, but in Alexandria, the carnage of the Jewish inhabitants exceeded all the other massacres. The whole Jewish quarter was deluged with blood, and 50,000 corpses lay in ghastly heaps in the streets. We don't have the historical background. We We don't remember. We don't recall what happened. We don't know what happened back then, so we gloss it over, and we don't really understand this text in its context, right? So the, what happened was that right after the persecution of the Christians, there were an even more a worse persecution against the Jews, and partly because the Jews were the one who incited Nero to persecute the Christians. Right? I should also indicate that uh, um, in Rome there was a um, um, well, well maybe not. I'll, I'll come back to that later. Uh, something is, escapes me right now. Um, now it is interesting that titus titus who was uh, who who was uh, leading the army the roman army against uh, jerusalem and he had encircled jerusalem he had laid a siege against her titus said after uh, after calling a council to have first deliberated whether he should destroy the temple A structure of such extraordinary work, for it seemed good to some that a sacred edifice edifice distinguished above all human achievements ought not to be destroyed inasmuch as, if preserved, it would furnish an evidence of Roman moderations, but if destroyed, would serve for perpetual proof of Roman cruelty. But on the opposite side, others and Titus himself thought that the temple ought specially to be overthrown in order that the religion of the Jews and of the Christians might more thoroughly be subverted, for that these religions, although contrary to each other, had nevertheless proceeded from the same authors, that the Christians had sprung up from among the Jews, and that if the root was, were extirpated, the offshoot would speedily perish. Tacitus, again. So one of the reasons why they went after the temple is because of hatred of Christ. Thinking that if we destroy the temple thoroughly, we get rid of the Christians. But the opposite effect... Was to happen? They were effectively being the instrument of God in establishing Christianity. And so, in verse 18, we see the angel now finally identifying it with the great city. The great city. And um, as I mentioned to you, this verse is the one that um, leads many to think that this is Rome. The great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. So, politically... Of course, Rome has dominion over the city of the earth. But is this a political manifesto? Is St. John talking politics here? No. He's speaking spiritually. And spiritually, which city has dominion over the kings of the earth? Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem has the temple, the one and only temple, of the true God where you offer worship. That is the city that has dominion over the kings of the world. Because this is where the king of kings is supposed to be enthroned. This is his, um, his city. Oh, verse 17. I didn't point this out to you. I think it's worth pointing out. It's St. Augustine. St. Augustine observed, It is therefore in the power of the wicked to sin, but that in sinning they do this or that is not in their power, but in God's, who divides the darkness and regulates it. So that hence, even when they do contrary to God's will, they, they do contrary to God's will, um, their will is not fulfilled, except it be God's will. In other words, even when they sin, they're still doing God's will. That's an indication of uh, support of the fact that Titus attacking Jerusalem, wanting to destroy it, so in particular destroying the source of Christianity, was effectively doing God's will, which is, was to establish the church. Okay? So the, the, the book of Revelation is not about politics; It's about a covenant. And Jerusalem did reign over the nations. And so, this, therefore, harlot is effectively Jerusalem seated upon Rome. And in Josephus, who was a a Jewish historian of the time, Josephus points out repeatedly that the nations had historically recognized the sanctity and centrality of the temple. This celebrated place, I quote, was esteemed holy by all mankind. So, not only the Jews, but all those who lived under the, in the empire knew about the Temple of Jerusalem, revered the Temple in Jerusalem, knew there was holy. Right? In fact, the action of Jewish rebels in the summer of AD 66 of halting the daily sacrifices for the emperor, in violation, jo- Josephus points out, of long-standing practices, was the single event which finally precipitated the Roman war against the Jews. Even at the very end, as Titus prepared to raise the city to the ground, he was still pleading with the Jewish priests to offer up the sacrifices, which by now had been entirely discontinued. So, part of the sacrifice was part of the uh, uh, ritual was to offer sacrifice for the em- uh, emperor. And when they ceased doing that in 66, the war began, according to Josephus, who was a historian at the time. So overall, here what do we see? We see that we are now coming to the climax to the climax of the book where God is going to eradicate, is going to make way with the old sacrificial uh, ritual of the temple in order to establish the new sacrificial ritual of the new temple, of the new Jerusalem, which is going to be coming down in two chapters hence. So this is logical conclusion of the whole series that started with the letters, went through the trumpets, the letters were warnings to the people of God, the seals were warnings to the world. The, 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 uh, the trumpets were the early punishment for all those who did not believe, telling them repent or else. And the cups were started with the economic punishment of the world, and now it's leading to the utter destruction of the center of opposition, which is in Jerusalem. And we'll see that concluded in chapter 19. And after that, what do we see? We see the new bride coming down from heaven. We see basically the establishment of the church on earth. And that's what we're going to see hence. So for us today, two things we need to recall. Number one, we need to remember that what happened back then is a pattern that God uses in our own times. God is constantly renewing the church. Constantly renewing his bride. He has only one bride. He doesn't have two. He loves her. That ought to fill all of us with hope. Because in order to renew the bride, He has to renew each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. He loves us beyond imagining. He wants us to be with Him forever and ever and be happy with Him for eternity. Eternity. We can't even fathom what eternity means. We can't even understand what a thousand years means. None of us has this experience of living a thousand years. We don't know what that means. How can we even understand eternity? What do you choose for yourself? What do you choose for yourself? Every action you do today is a choice you make for, for eternity. You will live eternally. You will never die. When you, when you come to the end of your earthly life, your soul separates itself from your body. That's a consequence of original sin. That was not meant to happen. It is going to happen. But as soon as the separation takes place, guess what? You as you are still you. You don't have a body, but your conscience is intact. Your faculty of thinking is intact. Your faculty of understanding is intact. Your memories are with you. Your entire life is with you. You will look at your body, laying still, you will feel nothing. You'll be detached from it. It's something you're leaving behind, but you're not dead. Do you understand that? To the eyes of the world, you're dead, but you are not dead. You will see a lot of people weeping and crying, hopefully. (laughs) Think about it, right? Hopefully you won't see anybody sneering or laughing. But anyhow, you see a lot of people weeping and crying and being really upset, and, and you would kind of a little bit wonder why all this thing going on. It won't feel as tragic to you as it does to them. You're still alive. You're not dead. You can't die. Do you understand that? There will never be a moment in your life where you're not you. Do you get it? And you would have lived, let's say, at most 100 years, maybe 120 years. 120 years. All that is behind you now. And you turn around and you're going to face your personal judgment. And it's gonna dictate where you are gonna live forever. Forever. No more choices. Do you understand that? You can't say, whoops, I'm in hell, I don't like it, I'm gonna go. Choices are taken away from you. Forever. For millions and millions and billions of years. Forever. Think about it forever. What are you doing today? Are you conscientiously making that choice? If not, you're making a choice. You get it? If you're not making a choice, you're making a choice. That's why we study Scripture. Not to become theologians, but to think biblically to become peoples of Scripture. So we look at the events, we look at the world, we look at our lives in light of Scripture. And what is Scripture? Scripture is only one word. It is Jesus Christ. That's all. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So take all that and make sure your life is changing every day. So you can be blessed forever God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.